Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. So today's episode is looking at the government's response to the privacy review. This is a review that has been many years in the making, which was handed down in February. And an earlier episode of Tech Mirror, Privacy is Not Dead, episode 22, we canvassed the findings of that review. And the government in September has released its response to the review. And in this episode, we're going to pick apart the government's response. What's good, what's bad and what is missing? My guests today are Anna Johnston. Hi. Avid listeners will remember that Anna was one of our guests in the Privacy is Not Dead episode. And Anna is a principal at Salinger Privacy. We also have Ryan Black. Hello. Hi, Ryan. Lovely to have you. Uh, Ryan is head of tech policy at the Tech Council of Australia. And last but certainly not least, we have Kate Bauer. Good morning who is formerly of choice or still with choice um, on sabbatical as a fellow at the Human Technology Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. It's wonderful to have you all with us today. Let's start on a positive note. What are the good things in the government's review? What are the things that you're enthusiastic and excited about? Anna, let's start with you. My kind of overall impression was... One of optimism, so I kind of I want to send a thumbs up to the Attorney General and say, you know, good work, keep it up, keep going. It's such a positive step to have the government recognise the need for really meaningful reforms. So in terms of what I'm most enthusiastic about, I'd like to call out two key changes that I see. So the first of those is a kind of a thematic shift. There's a recognition that we really need to shift the workload and the responsibility for privacy protection off us as individual consumers and citizens and move that workload and the responsibility onto the companies and the government departments that really want to use our personal information in the first place. So that kind of shift, it's not sort of one specific section in the legislation that you're going to see that come through in. It's That is, as I said, a, a kind of a theme that runs through a number of different proposals from mandatory privacy impact assessment for high-risk activities to a new proposed fair and reasonable test for organisations handling personal information that really moves us away from the sort of notice and consent model that put all the burden on us as individuals. So I'm really excited about that as a first shift. And the other thing I am excited about or enthusiastic about is the government's commitment to clarify and strengthen the definition of personal information. And this is the number one thing I am passionate about and have been campaigning about for years. So in particular, what I love about the response from the Attorney General is that he stated that the government considers that an individual may be reasonably identifiable where they are able to be distinguished from all others, even if their identity is not known. So this is in the context of the definition of personal information. It's a threshold definition, meaning all of the rights that we have as individuals and all of the obligations on organisations that hold our information, they all flow from this definition. If something's not considered personal information, it's not in scope for regulation of the Act. So actually strengthening and clarifying that definition is really important. Mm-hmm. Ryan, what is Tech Council most enthusiastic about in terms of the response? Yeah, there are a lot of positives in what the government's um, put in its response. 
Uh, so overall, kind of a positive kind of disposition to what's being put forward. But what I thought, you know, some of your listeners, um, Johanna, might ask the question about, well, how can you kind of have this scenario where you improve the protections for consumers while also reducing costs for business? Is that kind of win-win scenario possible with privacy mm. reform? And we we think that it is. We think that there are some good examples of that that are coming through in the government response as well. So if I just pick out a few things... Uh, the government has um, got a big push in the report towards greater interoperability and coherence with international um, frameworks like the GDPR, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, one example of that is adopting the concepts of data controllers and processes, um, but also updating the definition of personal um, of personal information, as as Anna just mentioned, um, as well. And so, what that can do is actually lift the standards that our companies abide by. We're also reducing compliance costs because. Um, if you have a look at the not just the tech sector, but a lot of businesses more broadly, they are export oriented. Um, a lot of them already have to comply with these frameworks. They've already got, uh, they already invest in kind of the compliance um, with some of these international frameworks. And to the extent that we can try to develop more coherence with those, then um, that can deliver those win wins. Um, I think also um, the push towards streamlining the multiple reporting processes and burdens on business as mm. well, which, um, you know, Yes, that is necessarily necessary to kind of reduce the compliance costs. But I think um, the issue, the real kind of heart of the issue of multiple reporting processes is that it can actually really slow down the response, um, you know, both within government and within the private sector as well when we see these sorts of incidents happen. Um, you know, businesses being tied up in the compliance activity and the reporting rather than kind of focusing on the incident response and the same thing happening in government as well. So to the extent that we can improve some of that, I think that that would be a great outcome. But we're also, you know, outside of those things, we're also really enthusiastic about some of the other changes um, that have been put forward by the government that we think can address some of the real practical challenges that we're seeing in the market today. Um, So again, if I just pick out another two things here, Uh, the proposal to amend APP 11 to make clear that reasonable steps that organisations need to take to protect personal information includes technical and organisational measures. Um, Now, there's a lot of jargon in that. So what that essentially means is is doing is drawing a link to the need for stronger cybersecurity practices within organisations to prevent these data breaches from occurring um, and providing organisations with more clarity around their legal obligations in that regard. And we think that that's a good thing um, and the push to try to align and that with some of the guidance coming out of the uh, Australian Cybersecurity Centre is also a real positive. We also think the reforms to require privacy impact assessments for, for high-risk privacy activities like facial recognition technology is really important as well. Um, and that'll do two things. It will improve, absolutely improve protection for consumers. But what we're seeing in the market at the moment is a real reluctance to invest in innovation and into this technology, which which can have real benefits, but there's a lot of uncertainty around where the boundaries are. And so it can actually have an impact on investment as well. So overall, a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, there's also some areas where we need to give some more careful thought about how we proceed, but um, optimistic as well. Yeah, look, that's that's great. And we'll get into the, some of those areas uh, very shortly. I, I think aligning the what we currently have through the APPs that Ryan was referring to there, the Australian Privacy Principles, which sit underneath the Australian Privacy Act and aligning that more strongly with the GDPR, the Global Data Protection Regulation from the EU, which has kind of become the global standard, is a really important point for interoperability. One of the things that we did talk about in the, in the previous episode, though, is that we don't have to stop at the benchmark and, and the level that is set by the GDPR and where can Australia 
move forward, you know, without being uh, contradictory to the GDPR, but still to raise the bar. So, Kate, what are you most enthusiastic about out of the government's response? Well, yeah, I agree uh, with my co-guests here that there is a lot to be um, enthused about. I think the first thing really is that there is a response. Like that was the first thing I was actually excited about is like this has been <laughs> a really, really long process. Privacy Gosh, that's reform. a low bar, Kate. I know, but like this report came out, you know, earlier, well, it was in March yeah. and we've been waiting and waiting and waiting yeah. um, to yep. even get a, a response. So I was pleased um, that there was a response um, and that the government government is taking serious steps to consider this issue um, and particularly in the current context now where we're, they're moving forward quite quickly with the IVS bill and the digital ID bill and you know we're just seeing continue uh, data breaches and the like like this is an urgent issue um, and it's something that the government really really does need to move on and obviously for all of us working in the space uh, you know this is a long hard battle, <laughs> a long slog. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the first thing is, yes, it's a low bar, but, you know, I would also echo what Anna said in terms of um, this idea of the individuation and the singling out principle. Um, that mm. wasn't super clear, I felt, in the review report. And um, Anna gave some very good commentary um, at the time about the importance of that kind of principle in talking about the definition of personal information. And I think from the consumer rights perspective, it's critically important because like what matters for consumers is not so much whether they know your name, it's whether a business or a company can act on you, whether that's through targeting you or surveilling you, um, or even in the case that we've seen um, previously at Choice, things like personalised pricing um, that can, mm. can direct you or, or even customised user journeys that prevent you from seeing certain types of products or certain types of deals, um, for example. Like those are the sorts of behaviours that we need transparency and protection for consumer. So I think getting that definition right um, and having it fit for the digital age, I know that sounds kind of like a bit of a cliche, but like it really, really is critically important. The Privacy Act is miles out of date. Like just so many of the technologies that exist now didn't exist when it was designed. Again, I also agree about the fair and reasonable use. I think the fair and reasonable use test is a really good, flexible, principles-based approach that will really put us in good stead for technologies that are coming down the line. So I do agree that harmonisation with international rules are important and it, it does reduce that compliance burden. But I also think we need to kind of look down, like if it takes us 20, 30 years to do privacy reform in this country. Like we need to take this opportunity <laughs> to be like, well, what do we need for the next 20 or 30 years? Yeah. And I think having a, a simple kind of principles-based test like that, that can change and develop over time through test cases and through regulator action is going to be really critically important. The other thing I'd like to call out from the consumer perspective is the removal of the small business exemption. So mm. this is really, really critically important. So uh, earlier this year, Choice released a report into what we're calling the rent tech sector, um, which anyone who has had to engage with the rental markets probably come up against these third-party um, apps that are asking huge amounts of information, even just the amount of information and personal data that you hand over to real estate agents. Two-thirds of real estate agencies are not covered by the Privacy Act. So I think about when you think about how much data and the risk of breach, the fact that these businesses hold so much information and not even covered by the Act, that's a really critically important step. And I think, you know, 
I can probably almost anticipate Ryan's response is, yeah, we need to think about careful transition, um, which I, I absolutely agree. But I think we've even seen positive signs coming out of small business um, membership organisations that this is a change that needs to happen. And instead of saying, let's not do the change, let's start having the conversation about how do we do this in a way that supports small businesses to become compliant and to do this in a, you know, a reasonable way um, that encourages that kind of uplift of privacy protections for everybody. I was also heartened to see um, the reference to the small business exemption and removing that exemption. Interestingly, though, the politicians have not removed the exemption for themselves uh, because the political exemption was one of the recommendations, which was noted, but not uh, agreed or agreed in principle. So we'll just make that observation. Now, this has been a good tour de force of the things we're excited about. Uh, maybe let's touch now a little bit on what you think is um, key things that were missing in the response. So for listeners, to put this in context, um, there was 116 proposals in the review report. 38 of them were agreed to by the government. 68 were agreed in principle, which the government has flagged means that they will agree, but there needs to be further consultation on them. And they noted 10 proposals, one of which was the political exemption that I just referred to there. Of the things that they've agreed in principle or noted, what most stands out to you as as missing? Ryan, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I thought um, 106 out of 116 being agreed or agreed in principle was a pretty good strike rate. But, yeah. I, but I agree, I was, I was um, surprised by how many proposals were agreed in principle. And I think that signals that there's still a long way to go in terms of what this reform package will actually end up looking like um, at the end. So I was surprised that some of the proposals in that were in the agreed in principle bucket, um, where I thought that there was quite a lot of support and there were common concepts and could be taken forward with a bit more confidence. So the definition, introducing the definitions and concepts of controllers and processes, for example, into Mm. the Privacy Act, which provides greater clarity around roles and responsibilities um, uh, for for businesses. um, And that I think has a flow-on impact for greater protections as well for consumers. So that's one where we're really keen to see it um, move forward as a as an initial priority as part of the reform package and uh, and want to give that a bit of a push. Um, I think the review of existing laws requiring um, data retention um, is one where we want to see some movement as well. I think there are concerns um, not just within the tech sector but across the business community more broadly around what is already expected of them in terms of holding personal information because that's where a lot of the concern lies as well as how do we actually minimise the collection and holding of this information in the first place and if we can try to minimise that then that can help alleviate some of the concerns at the other end particularly in the case of a, of a data breach. So if we can look at some of these existing laws and, and identify, you know, are some of these requirements still necessary? Are some of the timeframes that we're requiring businesses to hold this information still appropriate? Um, that can alleviate some of the problem as well. Um, uh, I thought I, I actually, we're quite supportive of the removal of the small business exemption as well, um, subject to the caveats, um, I think, that are included um, in the review. Um, so, but I was I was actually surprised that um, there was the level of political will to take that on because um, it is a very um, tricky, uh, I think, reform and it's going to be difficult to get right and there's going to need to be a lot of work to mm. make sure that there's the appropriate supports for small business and that they can actually comply because particularly because it is principles-based legislation, I think translating that 
for a small business is very difficult because they don't have the big compliance teams to interpret it for them and they don't necessarily have the big budgets to um, uh, to actually go out and get that legal advice either. So um, that is a big challenge. Um, but the one kind of key thing I think um, that was missing um, was this concept of legitimate interests. Um, uh, it's a concept that is very common under international law in the UK, the EU, Singapore, Canada. Um, and what it does is provide a, a lawful basis for legal processing of data um, that individuals may not have explicitly consented to, but um, provide some boundaries around that um, as a three-part test. Uh, that includes ensuring that the legitimate interests of the business for processing that data are not overridden by the rights and freedoms of the individual. Uh, and those legitimate interests can cover a range of things like fraud prevention, marketing, IT security, etc. And so instead, we've got this concept of a fair and reasonable test within the legislation. And, and you know, we're open to having conversations around, you know, what that can look like and how we can try to harmonise and align that with some of the international frameworks that exist. But I think even in that context, there is still an opportunity, I think, to consider how we can incorporate a legitimate interests exception or basis into the framework because it is such a well-understood concept, because it does enable companies to um, process personal information in ways that are consistent with consumer expectations, but also reduce the consent burden, which is a real big concern. Um, so I'll leave it. I'll leave it there because I know that our other guests um, might have other views on this as well. But um, that's a concept that we think can still be consistent with the overall intent of the reform package, and that we'd like to see taken forward in some some way. And so, Kate, did you have any any thoughts on that particular issue about the fair and reasonable test and legitimate interests? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting discussion because I think um, from my perspective, I'm kind of firmly against a legitimate business interest test because this goes back to kind of like what is the privacy law for and it's for protecting people's personal information. When we think about the friend reasonable use test, what I actually was thinking about what's missing is that it doesn't go further. So part of um, Choice's submission to, to the review was that we in fact think about a best interest duty and in fact the uh, recommendation of the government was that we include a best interest duty for children, but that we don't extend that to adults. So I think when those examples that Ryan gave about what would be a legitimate business purpose and when they're in line with consumer expectations, using um, personal information or personal data to prevent fraud or for cybersecurity reasons, those would in fact be in the best interests of consumers or the people that you're seeking to protect. I think the danger of talking about it in terms of legitimate business interests is, is that you very quickly can slip into an area that's bad for consumers, but good for business. And then we're straying from what we think, um, you know, what the purpose of privacy law is, which is to protect citizens' privacies, uh, protect citizens' privacy. You know, the way I think about this is that privacy is a human right, but profit is not. Okay, and we need to think about that as the guiding principle for what privacy law should do. Um, and, and that's why um, we suggested that, in fact, a, a beyond a fair and reasonable use test, a best interest duty, um, you know, data belongs to the people. Uh, you know, it, it, it is not a business asset. It's something that belongs to individuals. It's information about their lives, sometimes quite sensitive information about their lives. We've seen many instances over time um, where, you know, businesses have known someone was pregnant um, before 
powerful members of their family knew. Like this can be quite intimate information that these businesses are collecting. Um, and ultimately, I think we need businesses to act in the interests of the people whose data it is in the first instance um, and only consider business use um, when they can do so within those frames. And I think that that would include instances of fraud. It would include cybersecurity uses. But what it wouldn't include is manipulative and deceptive practices um, designed to get people to spend more or designed for people to pay different prices without their knowledge, designed to um, target them with um, harmful products like gambling products or with alcohol products, it would prevent those sorts of practices, which we know are not in the best interests of people, um, but would still allow for what we're calling legitimate business purposes, which, which do protect people and are in line with consumers' expectations. This is an example, I think, of how the government's response is actually threading the needle quite delicately. The proposal of the fair and reasonable test I think, um, will incorporate some of the principles of the legitimate interests that Ryan is talking about here um, and, and some of those balancing points that Kate has already um, has also touched on. I think it's also an example of the diversity of views that we have on these issues around privacy and why, you know, at the Tech Policy Design Centre, we're really eager to, to hear from industry, to hear from consumer advocates, to hear from privacy experts and get this diversity of, uh, of views on the table. Ryan, I'm just going to give you a, an opportunity if you want a response. I understand. I understand Kate's point. Um, the one thing I would say is, um, and, and where some of the concern is coming from around the the fair and reasonable test is how much it will drive um, us towards a really kind of heavy consent based model um, and a legitimate interests uh, exemption or, or basis for processing can help reduce some of that consent burden um, and consent is good when it's meaningful consent and I think the concern is if we kind of push too far down that path um, you have a situation where you um, have consent fatigue uh, amongst consumers you don't have meaningful consent and so you're not necessarily achieving those consumer outcomes anyway so that's point one the point two I'd probably make is that um, a lot of the um, I don't want to give a sense that um, a lot of the ways in which businesses can use personal information is always detrimental because a lot of the ways in which that information can be used uh, is done in a way that can really help consumers and support better consumer outcomes. Um, and if you think of areas like education technology, if you think of areas um, even consumer entertainment and music and things like that, a lot of the personalization benefits that we've seen in the way in which technology has developed over the last um, decade or so, um, I think are really valued by a lot of consumers in the community. So how do we kind of balance those outcomes, I think is um, what we want to ensure. We don't want to take that away from, and I don't think consumers want to see that um, kind of impacted either because there's a lot of value for consumers in the way in which um, th that technology is developed. So uh, there's it's, it's a balancing act, but um, I think that there's a real need to consider um, how we can ensure that we're not imposing a really kind of heavy consent burden, um, not just on businesses, but on consumers. So, Anna, from your perspective, what what was missing from uh, the government's response that you might have liked to have seen uh, included? Yeah, so you, you already touched, Johanna, on the 
exemption for political parties and politicians. <laughs> and my first response was just deep cynicism. Well, of course, they're not, they don't want to regulate themselves. But I've written more recently about why it's really important to actually bring politicians and political parties within scope for the regulation of the Privacy Act. We are seeing especially in this sort of era of generative AI, really um, turbocharged misinformation and disinformation campaigns, the ability to micro-target political messaging to Mm. individuals. We really need to, um, well, you know, attempts to reform things in, in other areas like truth in political advertising, I don't think will succeed unless the Privacy Act is first strengthened, um, A, to, to, you know, to amend the definition that we've talked about, B, to rein in um, individuated messaging based on people's behaviour as opposed to the, the sort of preferences or things that they ask for. And thirdly, unless it is actually extended to cover politicians and political parties. So that's that's sort of my number one thing that I was really disappointed to see was missing. Um, but also I felt like I was left just a little bit in the dark about exactly, first of all, this, the timing on which the government's going to move with the reforms mm. that it has agreed to or agreed to in principle, and also some of the policy intent around online behavioural tracking and and targeting and, and advertising. One of the um, one of the ten proposals that was only noted was a proposal to require um, platforms and others to enable an opt out from seeing personalised ads. Mm. The government's just noted that, said it agrees with the policy intent but wants to achieve that in a different way. So I'm looking forward to getting more clarity about, well, how are they going to achieve that policy intent? And I'm hoping that instead of opt-out, it's more like opt-in. So to Ryan's point about personalised services, I think it's um, it's all great when it's the consumer saying, yes, I want to see personalised recommendations of the next movie to watch, um, that is very different to information about what I have watched on on TV being packaged up and sold to an airline or a supermarket or, a, you know, whatever other kind of company it is without my really understanding that that's what's going on and certainly not at my request. So I think we need yeah. to um, get a bit more clarity around uh, you know what personalized services mean and what's in and what's out if you like um, yeah. and and perhaps that's where the fair and reasonable test will help achieve the the sort of heavy lifting on the kind of policy decisions that need to be made um, I do hope that the fair and reasonable test because it's principles based because it's flexible can actually reflect, as new technologies emerge, but also how community attitudes shift in response to those technologies over mm. time and we will build up over time some sense of, you know, what is fair and reasonable and what is not. Yeah. 
Look, I agree with you. One of the things that I was most surprised of, um, I I noted the political exemption, but I wasn't particularly surprised by it, but but the exemption, so the only noting um, the unqualified right to opt out, I thought that was very interesting, particularly when you look at you know, seventy-two percent of Australian Apple users, when they when Apple did the update with iOS fourteen point five, which allowed you to opt out of the, opt out of the tracking, seventy-two percent of Australians have chosen to opt out. So there's a clear indication as you know, a clear community appetite for this. Um, now, obviously, there are business implications of that opt out, um, which which uh, we're still only really uh, fully appreciating now. You're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating or, even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. Kate, from your perspective, Choice, uh, HDR, Human Technology Institute, Tech Policy Design Centre, um, and a number of other organisations, including Salinger Privacy, signed an open letter to the government calling for urgent legislation on a number of these uh, recommendations. Um, this open letter came out only a few weeks ago. Um, could you uh, explain a little bit about what the rationale for that uh, letter was and and perhaps also tying it into, you've spoken a little bit to some of the things that you thought were missing, but if there are others that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, so there were 27 signatories uh, to this letter and really the main purpose was if you look at the breadth of um, the different types of organisations and academics and advocates who are signing on to this letter really speaks to how far across our economy personal information and data protection um, reaches. So, for example, um, there's some AI um, experts on there, Toby Walsh and Aurelie Jacquet, who's the chair of Australia's uh, Standards Committee for Artificial Intelligence, um, right through to the IoT Alliance, so the, the idea of, you know, Internet of Things, right through to, um, as you mentioned, you know, people in tech policy, design people in privacy, but also really importantly, people who I kind of call like the frontline people who are mopping up the mess. So so financial (laughs) counsellors, community legal centres, like the people who are really on the ground helping people who have been victims of um, data breaches, who've been victims of um, identity theft, um, who've experienced severe financial loss, who've had their identity stolen, people who are experiencing extreme gambling harms, people who are dealing with addictions through, um, you know, kind of really extreme targeted um, advertising. Um, if you speak to, so for the Alliance for Gambling Reform, for example, was also a signatory. Um, so it also had a whole bunch of community and civil society organisations. Um, the, the, the point is really to kind of sound the alarm, say that this is a, an issue that cuts across so many of our services and so many of um, our, our um issues that are relevant today, whether like that's gambling harm, whether that's financial harm and people really doing it tough, tough in a cost of living crisis. Um, you know, the cost of scams to Australians last year was over $3 billion. Mm. Like this is a really, really significant issue and getting privacy law right is really um, in- integral to being able to deal with issues like data breaches and scams and identity theft. Um, these are real issues affecting Australians every day. More than half of Australians have been affected by a data breach in the last year, um, some by multiple data breaches. So the first was really just to demonstrate that this is 
part of AI, this is part of gambling reform, this is a part of what community legal centres, financial counsellors see every day. Um, but the other was really to that urgency message, like that this is vitally important that we get this right um, and we need to move on it quickly. And I, I, and I, by that I don't mean that we need to rush through consultation processes or, or like try and do it badly, but this is an issue that we've been talking about for a really, really long time. And as we move forward, as I mentioned earlier with the IVS bill, which doesn't have adequate privacy protections, which at the moment is just referring back to the Privacy Act to protect it. If the Privacy Act is not up to scratch, that's a big problem. Like this is a, a identity verification service, which is being accessed millions mm. of times per year um, to verify Australians' identities. Like these are really, really critical issues. Um, and I think, you know, privacy reform is kind of one of those issues that's it's not that sexy, right? Like it's probably oh, maybe it going to get as many uh, listeners as AI. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I think anyone who once they start thinking about the issues, um, they, they would realise that. So really the point of that letter was to demonstrate the breadth of civil society and, and policy support for this really super um, important initiative and to really try and put that conversation forward. Also acknowledging the fact that there are some pretty loud voices opposing privacy reform. Um, at the moment, we haven't seen them be too loud in public, but I suspect there's some voices being quite uh, loud um, in, in the halls of Canberra. Um, <laughs> so it's a little, a little bit of a kind of an advocacy effort to, to kind of, um, you know, put those voices mm, forward. Mm. Um, and I, I think, Kate, you've made a really important point there as well about all the way that privacy is so integral to so many other areas of focus for the government at the moment, whether it's regulation of artificial intelligence, whether that's whether it's the, the identity, identity verification bill, whether it's looking at digital identity, uh, whether uh, the cybersecurity reforms. So, Anna, how what sort of sense is there in terms of how these privacy reforms are being integrated, how they're working uh, with these other uh, activities of the government. And, you know, it does it does a little bit appear like there is a lack of synergy. This is something we've really focused on in, in the Tech Policy Design Centre is the coordination across government on these issues. So how are you seeing uh, privacy playing into these other areas? Look, I agree that privacy reform is really critical to so many other policy and legislative kind of priority areas for the Australian government. And, you know, while we we wait for the next step in the Privacy Act reforms, just in the last couple of months we've, we, we're seeing the ACCC is doing its inquiry into the data broking industry. Yeah. The Department of Industry, Science and Resources is doing its piece on responsible AI and, you know, just globally so much focus <laughs> on AI. Yeah. Um, we've got, you know, off the back of the, the in particular, the Optus and Medibank data breaches last year, this recognition that we really need to uplift cybersecurity across all organisations, digital identity, uh, identity verification services, as Kate mentioned, online safety, all of these things, um, you know, privacy works across all of them, and, and it absolutely points to the need to move forward on the privacy reforms as a matter of urgency in order for all of those different policy outcomes to be effective. My concern is that, um, and I'll say I, I'm, I'll say I think the Australian government is, is doing better at this now than it has done in the recent past. Agree. But there is always a, a concern 
that, um, you know, if you're the department looking at AI or you're the regulator looking at data brokers, you think, oh, well, that that part of our problem is going to be solved because the Privacy Act reforms are coming. Now, first of all, of course, they're not guaranteed to be coming, um, but it also just sort of shifts the responsibility. So, I, you know, we've sometimes seen um, sort of whole areas of inquiry sort of quarantined and not gone into in detail because a different agency or a different regulator or a different body says, oh, that's going to be fixed in the Privacy Act, so we don't yeah. need to worry about it now. Um, I think that's that's just resting some of these other pieces of work on really um, a sort of unstable ground until we actually see the Privacy Act reforms go through mm. and, and go through in the way in which, you know, um, that I'm hoping to see them go through and that <laughs> advocacy bodies are hoping to see them go through, not not some watered-down version. Mm, mm. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, the example that, that Kate was giving there about the identity Identity Verification Act, which I'm having trouble saying today, uh, is a is an, a perfect example of where they're sort of resting the privacy uh, of something that is really integral in reforms that are not yet guaranteed. And at the same time, in in the government's defence, you also don't want to have provisions in the Identity Verification Act that are inconsistent with reforms that are coming. So this is complex. Um, Ryan, from Tech Council's perspective, do you have anything to share in terms of how these these pieces weave together? Yeah, um, I think some of our concern um, to some extent is the um, the opposite of what Anna was just talking about in terms of portfolios um, looking to the Privacy Act Review as an example and saying, oh, well, that issue will be dealt with through the Privacy Act Review. What we often see is portfolios and ministers saying, oh, we all want to get in on the action and solve that problem <laughs> and we're all going to use a because whole range of different Because it's sexy. Levers. <laughs> exactly, because it's a sexy <laughs> problem. So, um, and, and so that's, so while I think that there are attempts to try to kind of coordinate across and genuine attempts to coordinate across, mm. across government, yeah. I think that there's still a lot of room for improvement at that meta level around how do you coordinate around the problem in the first place and then work out what are the right levers that you should be pushing. And there's some examples of that. Uh, I think recently at the moment there's consultation happening around prohibition on unfair trading practices and a lot of the concerns that are driving that are in the privacy space, for example, and yet we've got a government response to the Privacy Act review that's kind of running at the same time. Uh, last year after the, the data breaches and cyber incidents um, that occurred at Optus and Medibank, there was a major increase to the Privacy Act penalties as kind of a, a response to um, cybersecurity attacks. And there's just a question about was that the kind of right response at the time for that? And we didn't oppose that, but... Um, uh, but you kind of need to think just a little bit more broader about, well, what are we actually, what's the problem we're trying to fix here and what are the right levers that we should be pulling? So mm. still a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. And I do want to give um, the Albanese government credit where credit's due in terms of this is definitely the most coordinated I've seen uh, an Australian government on these issues. But I, I 100% agree with, with everything that's been said in terms of we need to, <laughs> there's still a lot of room for improvement. And if the government's looking for a model, we happen to have one in a report called Cultivating Coordination, which will be linked in the pod notes. <laughs> now, Anna, you also touched there on uh, AI and the fact that, uh, you know, AI is incredibly a hot topic topic at the moment. And certainly over the last, um, say, month, we've had the G7 uh, Hiroshima process and the guiding principles for advanced AI far less talked about, but actually released a week earlier 
was China's international AI initiative. We've also had the US executive order looking at testing of AI models and, of course, the UK AI safety summit, the Bletchley Park Declaration, and much less talked about also same out of Bletchley Park, uh, the statement on testing that also came out, which is saying for these frontier tech models, um, we we will now um, require testing before deployment. And a number of countries have signed up to that uh, declaration and statement. Every one of these declarations, including the Chinese declaration, refer to the importance of privacy and data protection, and that this needs to be really addressed in the context of artificial intelligence. One of the things we love to do uh, is to give our guests at Tech Mirror a magic wand and say, in this case, if you could wave your magic wand and say you can implement one privacy protection that would implement and promote personal privacy in the age of artificial intelligence, what would it be? Kate, let's go to you first. Um, well, I kind of love this question and hate this question, right? Because like, yeah, we all want a magic <laughs> wand. So I'm going to be cheeky and maybe pick two things. But also I'm not going to use the magic wand. I'm going to pick two things that I think the government could implement today. Um, one of Brilliant. which is um, an expert advisory body like an AI commission. This is a feature of um, Human Technology Institute submission. There is a real need for regulators at the moment who are struggling to understand how our current regulations and how current law applies to AI to really understand the technology and to get that expert advice um, and to really be able to focus whether or not that's the um, information commissioner, whether or not it's the ACCC or ASIC. Um, There is things that these regulators could be doing today um, to uplift protections, um, but they need some help to do it. So that's something that, in fact, um, the government could announce tomorrow if they wanted to, um, is the creation of that kind of expert advisory body and a new commission. Um, You know, the open question of whether or not that should be a new regulator, I'm just going to put that to one side for a whole nother podcast, um, (laughs) whether or not that that should in (laughs) fact have um, have regulatory powers. But I definitely think the need is there for that. And the second thing I would say, which is kind of related to this, is is the high-risk um, high risk to privacy things that are happening. We've talked a little bit about facial recognition is that Human Technology Institute has put together an incredibly detailed proposal for a model mm. law about how to recognise this. And I know from my work at, at Choice, when we looked at, um, you know, the Bunnings and Kmart example, we're still waiting for the Privacy Commissioner to um, announce <laughs> um, what the findings of that investigation are. But in the interim, we're seeing a proliferation of facial recognition and the the plain fact of the matter is that Australians are not protected um, adequately from having their biometric information collected and used. Um, and I think that's something that if I had that magic wand that we need urgent act action on um, is a law that regulates facial recognition and, in fact, could regulate other high-risk privacy, um, you know, uh, activities. I very much endorse uh, the first point and part of the, uh, the model that we have put forward in the report, Cultivating Coordination, is the establishment of an expert advisory body. Um, and I guess the, the one area where I deviate a little bit from Kate on this is I, I think we should have this not necessarily focused on AI or facial recognition. I think these, these need to be more technology neutral um, and we can um, delve into that. As you say, Kate, perhaps in another episode, we'd definitely love to have you back. But 
uh, I think getting that expertise to government is super, super important. And I also think it's really important that we have protections around facial recognition as well. So, so, and I really commend the excellent work that HTI and Choice has been doing uh, in that space. Ryan, the magic wand hasn't yet been used. What would you use your magic wand for? I think I'd hand the magic wand to Kate because um, we're very big supporters of the model that um, both of those proposals that have been put forward by HTI, um, really big backers of that proposed coordination and expert advisory model or commission um, around AI. And I, and, I, and I completely take your point as well, Johanna, about um, thinking about how to extend that um, to broader technologies as well. But I think there is a, a real particular need at the moment to mm. uplift the capability and literacy of regulators across the board around how um, existing laws apply to AI because, um, you know, as I like to say, there are no, uh, you know, exemptions for AI in our existing laws. Um, uh, our existing, you know, we've got a whole suite of technology neutral and industry and sector specific laws, product specific laws that um, should apply in the context of AI and that includes privacy. Um, but what's missing is the link between um, what's in the law and translating that to what it means um, for AI and then also uplifting the cap. I'd take it one step further and say um, actually translating that into tangible guidance for businesses and organisations um, around how they implement the right governance measures within their own organisations to, to enact that. Um, and HDI has been doing some great work on, on that front as well. So, um, yeah, I think that that's, that's the, the real key. We've got a, a really significant um, and, you know, pretty good existing regulatory framework that's worked well for decades for a whole range of different purposes. And we think that it can be applied to AI. Um, there may be circumstances where we do need to um, amend existing law or there's a genuine gap where we need to introduce new law. Um, but the starting point really needs to be how do we utilise these existing laws better, ensure that they are being enforced um, and ensure that businesses are clear about what the requirements are and that they're supported to put in place the right governance processes. Absolutely. So, Anna, the magic wand is still not used. So, and when I say the magic wand, my my lovely goddaughter made me a sparkly magic wand. So I have a very visual image of what this magic wand looks like. And I'm pretty sad that it's not being used. So over to you. Oh, I am going to use it. I am definitely <laughs> going to use the sparkly magic wand. Um, look, picking up on the, the kind of themes that Kate and Ryan have mentioned already um, absolutely the need for that sort of expert import to regulators and the ability for regulators then to turn that into pragmatic guidance for regulated entities. I'm not using the magic wand yet. That's still just what should be done anyway. Um, and uh, But also speed. I think the speed of... Um, you know, response to new technologies and challenges and this, the speed of regulators to actually kind of keep up. So um, where I would use the sparkly magic wand is to um, create a, a single global privacy law with a single global privacy regulator and for that law to have that kind of that testing built in, so sort of mandatory privacy impact assessment, but also, you know, safety and ethical assessments and the need for organisations to get the tick from the regulators before 
anything goes to market. So I really would love to see a move to um, or an end to the move fast and break things kind of mentality globally. Um, I would rather see legislators and regulators have the ability to move fast and regulate things for the safety and benefit of all of us to actually slow things down um, so that we can fix the, um, you know, fit the brakes and fit the seatbelts before before the car goes back on the road. Yeah, and I, I think the, the need for speed is essentially why, for me, it's so important that we keep things technology neutral because if, if we're not, then the ability to keep up as the technology evolves becomes really complex. The final question we ask all our guests is recommendations uh, for things uh, to read if people want to read into more areas in this space. I want to flag one just particularly in response to Ryan and, and Anna's comments there about understanding regulators. Um, the Digital Platforms Regulators Forum, which is a combined uh, forum of ACCC, so the Australian Competition Com- Consumer Commission, uh, the Privacy Commissioner, the eSafety Commissioner and the Communication Media Authority um, put out a joint submission in response to the government's response, the government's call for uh, input to uh, responsible AI. And in that, I think I've spoken about it previously on the podcast, but it's a really um, quite extraordinary um, thing for regulators to have responded to a government submission publicly um, and they're, where they're detailing how they see provisions of the existing laws to already apply. So it definitely doesn't go into as much detail and, and deliver the business certainty in the level of detail that, that Ryan was talking about. But it is, you know, still a pretty uh, important document that I, I don't think people pay enough attention to. So that one is going to be my recommendation for readers. Um, uh, Kate, what would you recommend? Um, yeah, I think that I agree with your recommendation. I think that is a good read. Um, look, also, I love Anna's blog. Um, I read it all the time. So I'm just going to give a shout out to Anna. And that's why we have republished it on choice a number of times because I just love it so much. And I think everybody should read it. Um, But that's probably, you know, like a bit of a free kick. Um, Obviously, also choice and HDI's work. Um, But the one thing I will call out, which I really have um, found very um, insightful and thoughtful, and I don't necessarily agree with everything in it, but I find it incredibly um, thought-provoking and interesting, is the work of Arvin Narayanan, um, who's got this um, blog, this substack called AI Snake Oil. So he's an AI machine learning scientist mm. at Princeton um, who's writing a book called AI Snake Oil, um, and he just talks really, um, you know, really with that, like, scientist's perspective about issues like the reproducibility crisis, um, the open source versus closed source models um, and like really kind of digs mm. in deep into and actually really calls out um, some of what we're seeing, you know, like kind of calls out the hype cycle of some of these AI and says actually, you know, when you look at the evidence, this these models are not working in the way that they say they are or, you know, and, and it's a really kind of d- detailed scientific view that we don't always get when we're hearing about AI and reading mm. about AI. Um, so as I said, I don't always agree with everything that's written in the blog, but I just find it very um, thought-provoking um, and insightful and a good contribution to, to how I'm thinking about these issues. Look, I think if we're agreeing with everything that's written, then it's not uh, it, it's not worth reading. So I love being challenged. So, <laughs> uh, except of course, if it's something that I've written, in which case everyone must agree with it. Uh, Ryan, uh, over to you. I'm looking forward to checking out Anna's blog now. So, um, 
I just just on your point, um, Johanna, around the the tech regulators forum and what they've published. I was actually going to call out. Um, this is a bit of a love in now, but I was actually going to call out um, HTI and the work that they've been doing in this space as well, Kate. And they put out a really great report earlier in the year. Um, some work they've been doing with Minduru around. Um, AI governance mm. um, uh, and businesses and, and how the existing regulatory framework um, applies in the context or or, in, or interacts with um, AI development and adoption. Uh, and I thought that that was an incredibly insightful piece of work. Um, and very, de- really very detailed in a way that often we don't have that level of granularity. So, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Really, really fantastic um, piece. So, um, and then on top of that, there's just been a few um, key developments in recent times. Uh, President Biden in the US um, uh, just put out an executive order around safe and responsible AI. And if you're interested in just kind of how other countries are starting to think about how to approach um, AI regulation and governance, it's worth having a look at that. We think it's a, it's a pretty good model that doesn't just kind of look at um uh, it, it looks at how you balance kind of all aspects of um, the implications of AI from the safe and responsible aspects to how do we enable innovation and, and ensure that our countries remain at the forefront, uh, as well as how we deal with some of the workforce implications as well. So I thought it was um, a fairly kind of comprehensive model. And similarly, the, um, just in the, the approach that we've been talking about just recently around AI and um uh, and what is the best approach to governance? I think um, the UK government put out its pro-innovation approach to mm. um, AI um, earlier in the year as well, and, and that's worth a look. Those two models, the UK and the US, are particularly what we're looking at the Tech Council around how we approach those issues here in Australia. Thanks, Ryan. And Anna, from you. Well, first of all, thank you so much. You've already given the uh, the plug to the Salad to Privacy newsletter and blog. I don't need to mention that now. Um, but interesting that Kate mentioned Arvin from Princeton because before he started his AI snake oil piece years ago, eight or nine years ago, he wrote a series of articles on de-identification and re-identification, which absolutely inspired a lot of the work that we've since done around de-identification. Mm. And, and a lot of that is behind um, why I'm sort of obsessed with the definition of personal information, why it matters so much. So uh, he wrote a great piece about um, the re-identification risks or the individuation risks arising from a supposedly de-identified data set of um, a year's worth of taxi trips tra- taken around New York City. And and that inspired my first blog. So we've, I feel like we've now gone in, uh, in our first newsletter, I think. Uh, so I feel like we've gone full circle now. Um, in, I love it. Terms, it's so beautiful. Yeah, in terms of other recommendations for your listeners, for in addition, obviously, to this Tech Mirror podcast, one of the podcasts I listen to regularly, I listen to a lot, but um, for a sort of local take, I recommend the weekly podcast this week in Digital Trust. Mm. And for interde- international developments, I suggest you tap into the Future of Privacy forum for plenty of art- articles, infographics, and they also have a weekly podcast. That's awesome. Uh, and I have actually just recently been a guest on This Week in Digital Trust so uh, and, and love their work, so very much endorse that one. We hope that this episode has also made you think a little bit differently uh, about privacy and canvas some of the different perspectives. Thank you so much, uh, Kate, Ryan and Anna, uh, for joining us for this. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks so everyone. Thanks for having us. 
Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved. Thank you.